Section 28. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 28. Chapter 5 Continued. The Military Aspect of the Revolution. The reader, if he be unaccustomed to military history, does well to note that in every action and in every campaign there is some one factor of position or of arms or of time which explains the result. Each has a pivot or hinge, as it were, upon which the whole turns. It was now upon Maubeg that the Revolutionary War thus depended. At risk of oversimplifying a complex story, I would lay down as the prime condition for the understanding of the early revolutionary wars, had Maubeg fallen, the road to Paris lay open, and the trick was done, and here we must consider again the effect in the field of Carnot's genius. In the first place he had provided numbers, not on paper, but in reality. The committee, though a decree of the assembly had despotically requisitioned men, animals, vehicles, and supplies. The levy was a reality. Mere numbers, then raw but increasing, had begun to pour into the northeast. It was they that had told at Honshut. It was they that were to tell in front of Maubeg. Footnote. I must not, in fairness to the reader, neglect the great mass of opinion from Jomny to Fortescue's classic work upon the British Army, which lays it down that the Allies had but to mask the frontier fortresses and to advance their cavalry rapidly along the Paris road. Historical hypotheses can never be more than a matter of judgment, but I confess that this view has always seemed to me to ignore, as purely military historians and especially foreign ones might well ignore, the social condition of ninety-three. Cavalry is the weakest of all arms with which to deal with sporadic, unorganized, but determined resistance. To pass through the densely populated country of the Paris Road may be compared to the forcing of an open town, and cavalry can never be relied upon for that. As for the army moving as a whole without a perfect security in its communications, the matter need not even be discussed. It must further be remembered that the moment such an advance began, an immediate concentration from the north would have fallen upon the ill-guarded lines of supply. It may be taken that Coburg knew his business when he sat down before this, the last of the fortresses. Secondly, as the committee supplied the necessary initiative, Carnot supplied the necessary personality of war. His own will and his own brain would come to one decision in one moment, and did so. It was he, as we shall see, who won the critical action. He chose Jourdain, a man whose quaint military career we must reluctantly leave aside in so brief a study as this, but at any rate an amateur, and put him in Houchard's command over the army of the northern frontier, and that command was extended from right away beyond the Ardennes to the sea. He ordered, and Jordan obeyed, the concentration of men from all down that lengthy line to the right and to the left upon one point, Guise. 
To leave the rest of the frontier weak was a grave risk only to be excused by very rapid action and success. Both these were to follow. The concentration was effected in four days. Troops from the extreme north could not come in time. The furthest called upon were beyond Arras, with sixty-five miles of route between them and Guise. This division, which shall be typical of many, not quite eight thousand strong, left on receiving orders in the morning of the 3rd of October, and entered Guise in the course of the 6th. The rate of marching and the synchronicity of these movements of imperfect troops should especially be noted by anyone who would understand how the revolution succeeded. A second division of over 13,000 men followed along the parallel road with a similar timetable. From the other end of his line, a detachment under Beauregard, just over 4,000 men, was called up from the extreme right. It will serve as a typical example upon the eastern side of this lightning concentration. It had been gathered near Carignan, a town fully 14 miles beyond Sedan. It picked up reinforcements on the way and marched into Formes upon the 11th after covering just 70 miles in the three and a half days. With its arrival, the concentration was complete, and not a moment too soon, for the bombardment of Maubeg was about to begin. From the 11th to the 15th of October, the army was advanced and drawn up in line, a day's march in front of Guise, with its centre at Avesnes, and facing the covering army of Coburg, which lay entrenched upon a long wooded crest, with the valley of the Sambri upon the right, and the village of Watinis on a sort of promontory, of high land upon the left. The Austrian position was reconnoitred upon the 14th. Upon the 15th, the general attack was delivered and badly repelled. When darkness fell upon that day, few in the army could have believed that Mobeg was succorable. It was a question of hours. Carnot, however, sufficiently knew the virtues as the vices of his novel troops. The troops of the great levy, stiffened with a proportion of regulars, to attempt an extraordinary thing. He marched 8,000 from his left and center over to his right during the night, and in the morning of the 16th his right in front of the Austrian left at Watinez had by this conversion become far the strongest point of the whole line. A dense mist had covered the end of this operation as the night had covered it in its inception, and that mist endured until nearly midday. The Austrians upon the heights had no hint of the conversion, and Montignes was only held by three regiments. If they expected a renewed attack at all, they can only have expected it in the center, or even upon the left, where the French had suffered most the day before. Initiative in war is essentially a calculation of risk, and with high initiative the risk is high. What Carnot gambled upon for Jourdain was against the experiment when he moved those young men through the night, was the possibility of getting active work out of them after a day's furious action. The forced marches of the preceding week, and on top of it all a sleepless night of further marching. Most of the men who were prepared to charge on the French right, as the day broadened and the mist lifted on that 16th of October, had been on foot for thirty hours. The charge was delivered and was successful. The unexpected numbers thus concentrated under Wattignius carried that extreme position, 
held the height and arrived therefore on the flank of the whole austrian line which had not the effort of the aggressors exhausted them would have been rolled up in its whole length as it was the austrians retreated unmolested and in good order across the sambray the siege of maubeg was raised and the next day the victorious french army entered the fortress thus was successfully passed the turning point of the revolutionary wars two months later the other gate of that country was recovered in the moment when maubeg was relieved the enemy had pierced the lines of wissembourg it is possible that an immediate and decisive understanding among the allies might then have swept all Alsace, but such an understanding was lacking the disarrayed army of the rhine was got into some sort of order notably through the enthusiasm of hoche and the silent control of pichigru at the end of november the prussians stood on the defensive at kaisenslautern hoche hammered at them for three days without success what really turned the scale was the floods of men and materiel that the levy and the requisitioning were pouring in just before christmas the enemy evacuated hagenau landau they still held but a decisive action fought upon boxing day a true soldier's battle determined by the bayonet settled the fate of the allies on this point the french entered wiesenburg again and landau was relieved after a siege of four months and a display of tenacity which had done not a little to turn the tide of the war the end of section twenty eight